to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Good day. My name is Rick Paschkett, and I am content guy for the business law section. And I welcome you to the ABA's business section podcast program to the extent that. And today's series is entitled Selected Lessons from the Director's Handbook, Situations Commonly Encountered in the Boardroom. And today's episode, Whistleblowers, Giving Practical Advice to boards on what they need to know. Our host today is Frank Placenti. Frank is a partner and leader of the U.S. corporate governance practice of Squire Patton Boggs. He is currently the chair of the Business Law Section's Corporate Governance Committee, and he is the editor of the BLS book, Director's Handbook, a field guide to 101 situations commonly encountered in the boardroom. Frank was also founding president of the American College of Governance Council. Frank? Thank you, Rick, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to the fourth in our series of podcasts of selected chapters from the director's handbook. I want to thank you for joining. I invite you to look out for the other uh, podcasts in this series and also to let you know that the Director's Handbook is still available from the American Bar Association. Um, and if you're a member, you can purchase it uh, at a discounted rate. So please uh, feel free to reach out uh, and um, acquire the, the entire book. Um, today's chapter uh, is on whistleblowers. And we're pleased to uh, welcome to our podcast, the author of the chapter in the Director's Handbook regarding whistleblowers, Mike Blanchard. Mike is a partner with Morgan Lewis and Bacchus um, and works in its Boston office. He's been practicing there for 25 years. Mike concentrates his practice on stockholder litigation and corporate governance and represents boards in all forms of stockholder litigation, M&A litigation, activist defense, and securities class actions. He's a frequent Pro Hoc Vice filer in the Delaware Chancery Court, and he's tried cases to judges and juries alike. But Mike spends as much time in boardrooms counseling boards on how to avoid litigation as he does in the courtroom. He frequently represents boards and special committees in connection with internal investigations. There are a couple of little known facts about Mike. Um, Mike is an avid outdoorsman and he brews his own beer. And uh, I suspect that there's a link between brewing his beer and spending time outdoors, but I'll let him cover that maybe at the conclusion <laughs> of his remarks. Mike's here today not to talk about beer, uh, but to talk about whistleblowers uh, and what boards need to know about them. So, Mike, let's start at the beginning. Uh, what is a whistleblower and why should directors care about them? Thanks. Thanks very much, Frank. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to expound on the chapter um, from the director's handbook. Uh, but I, I think uh, the best way to put whistleblowers in context for directors is to really start with the observation that boards of directors have fiduciary obligations that include oversight and managing risks that face the company. Right? And that's a broad topic that varies with every company and with every industry that they occupy. But every company faces risks associated with employees, employees, 
and uh, vicariously that's the, the company breaking the law, right? It could be regulatory concerns, accounting issues. There could be environmental concerns, uh, discrimination. If you have employees, we're in the hashtag me too era. All of this is legal risk that the company uh, faces, different companies face in, in different contexts. And the boards are all you know, unified in their obligation to try and monitor the company's legal compliance and, and manage those risks. And uh, very often, the way that these legal uh, violations surface, the way they come to light, is through whistleblowers. Um, it, at the most generic sense, you know, whistleblowers are employees or insiders or individuals who are basically reporting violations to someone. <clears throat> um, and what the board should be concerned about is uh, who those whistleblowers are reporting to. Are they reporting internally to the company? Or is it going to be an external report that goes right to the government? So, Mike, one of the things that I've uh, wondered about in the whistleblower area is obviously um, boards have an obligation, say the Delaware courts, to have a well-designed and effectively implemented compliance program. And if they don't, they could conceivably have what's sometimes referred to as caremark liability. Would you think that an appropriate program for how to manage whistleblowers is part of a well-designed and effectively implemented compliance program? Absolutely. I mean, with, without uh, the program for reporting uh, internally, uh, th then there's going to be accusations after the fact when problems arise that the board failed in its uh, so-called care mark duties. Uh, the duty to maintain uh, an adequate program uh, of internal controls and, and the you know, it's a duty to monitor those programs. Um, and if, if problems arise, to address them. That's what, what boards are supposed to do. Um, and so absent those internal systems, uh, boards are faced with a lot of exposure uh, in caremark liability. And if you're paying attention to the law in Delaware over the last couple of years, uh, there's been a number of cases where caremark claims have been uh, sustained. They've survived a motion to dismiss. So this is, is growing concern. Mike, you mentioned that companies... Um should be trying to direct uh, these whistleblowing reports internally rather than directly to the government. Why does that make a difference? Either way, there's a violation of the law. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the, the difference is in the potential outcome for the company, right? If a company discovers that it or its employees have violated the law, um, then the company can address those violations internally. And, you know, in some cases they may be required or other cases it may just be appropriate, but they can then self-report those violations and what they've done about it to, to the government, you know, and bring us a package deal. We've discovered there's a problem and we fixed it. And you go to the government in that posture, that's usually going to result in a better outcome than if the government dis dis discovers the problems um, and, and addresses them without the company having first identified them. Um, you know, it's, it, the difference is going to be potentially in the level of fines or penalties that, that get paid. Um, and, and then, you know, the secondary concerns about the board's liability that we were just talking about under our care mark theory. Um, if, if the company had discovered the problems on its own through systems that the board has in place, well, that's about the best medicine you're going to have uh, to, to fight back some plaintiff's lawyer's assertions that the board was lax in its oversight responsibilities. That makes sense. And it's all great in theory. But given what human nature is, is aren't there some disincentives for employees to report? Aren't they concerned about being regarded as a snitch or that they could be retaliated against or ostracized? 
Yeah, of course. And and that's that's human nature. And, you know, folks don't want to blow the whistle, so to speak, on their coworkers. Maybe they do on their supervisors, you know, but um, there's 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 definitely some some sort of human nature disincentive to to self-reporting. Um, and even when information is reported internally, you know, it, people are going to have, uh, I guess, a, a tendency to want to deal with the problems themselves. Um, and not necessarily even go to the government with it, right? So it's human nature to try and take care of the problem internally um, and and perhaps not really go through those formal channels that are going to result in some sort of disciplinary action. Um, you know, people get fired and, and the like. And, and that risk is what makes, you know, relying on internal self-reports um, not not so effective unless you really take measures and and put um, systems in place that encourage that reporting and, um, and make employees feel like that that's part of their obligation. So um, what things can a board do to, from a practical point of view, encourage whistleblowers to come forth internally versus going directly to the government? Yeah, well, you know, the board can do a number of things, um, but what, what has to happen is besides having systems in place, you know, uh, anonymous hotlines and whatnot, um, a strong code of ethics or a strong code of conduct, um, obligations that employees are, are aware of. They're signing policies, knowing that they're obligated to uh, report problems to the board. Um, you know, you also have to set a tone at the top that really imposes a culture of compliance um, because all of that really is just going to be words on paper if it's not the, the company's culture uh, to encourage in, internal self-reporting. Uh, and, and then, you know, by the same token, um, the flip side of that is that if you're going to be inter- encouraging internal reports, people have to feel comfortable that they're not going to be uh, penalized or retaliated against it, you know, for, for re- reporting internally. Um, and doing that also helps you comply with the law because retaliation is, is illegal. Um, but it also, you know, fosters a system or an environment where employees are going to be willing to, to come forward. One of the uh, things that I've encountered, and I'd just like your comment on this, um, is that there are differing um, cultural norms in different countries. So, for example, uh, the concept of, of a whistleblower and encouraging whistleblowing um, doesn't really translate well in, in certain um, countries. And so isn't that may be something that a, uh, a board may have to deal with. For example, uh, in, in my experience in Germany and in Japan, um, that's not consistent with cultural norms there. If you're outside the U.S., you're in, in a different world culturally in, in the way folks view their, you know, their obligations to their employer and, and to each other and, and to other employees. Um, yeah, Japan's a little different. Um, if, if you've got, you know, anything happening anywhere in Asia, that's a, a different culture than the United States. India is going to be a different deal as well. And you want to really kind of tailor your programs um, to the best of your ability to address those cultural differences. Given the disincentives to reporting internally that we've discussed, the sort of human nature issues, doesn't the government have some tools in play to try to get the reporting made directly to them? Yeah, and that's we're getting right back to, to, to where this is all going, right? So, you know, given general human nature, folks are going to have a disincentive to report internally, um, you know, to, to their employer. Um, you know, unless someone is is feeling an, an obligation, a personal obligation to morality, you know, who's going to go off to the government as well, especially with fears of retaliation or, you know, you're viewed as a snitch among your fellow employees. 
um, there's a lot of risk that that folks might perceive um, in terms of reporting to the government, but the government recognizes that. And the government addresses that in these whistleblower programs that we're going to talk about a little bit here. And they address it with one of the more powerful incentives that there are. Um, and that's money, right? Um, that's, that's the ability for whistleblowers to come forward and give the government some original information about legal violations going on with an incentive that they might receive a financial uh, reward. And uh, have those rewards been um, increasing? Yeah, I mean, so there's a number of whistleblower programs that that we can talk about, but one prominent one is the Securities Exchange Commission's whistleblower program. Uh, it's been in place for almost a decade now. It's it's a part of uh, Dodd Frank coming emerging out of the financial crisis, uh, and the program provides a you know a whistleblower providing original information of a violation of securities laws. Uh, if it if it results in an enforcement action that leads to a million dollars or more in fines, then the whistleblower gets an award of 10 to 30% of that, that fine or penalty. Um, and that's significant when you think about the size of enforcement actions and the awards uh, and the amounts and fines and penalties that in settlements that companies have agreed to pay with the SEC. Um, the largest award that was provided uh, by the SEC to a whistleblower so far just occurred last October. A whopping $114 million was paid to a whistleblower in connection you know, with, with reporting uh, illegal activity. Very, very large incentive financially for individuals to come forward with that sort of information. Well, given the size of that, those awards and, and the notoriety they're receiving, what can companies do to try to, try to prevent employees from blowing whistle to the government? Could they, for example, have a contract with all employees prohibiting them from doing that? Sure, if they want to make their problems much, much worse, right? <laughs> because, of course, the, the government's thought about that, and, and that's illegal. You can't prohibit uh, individuals from, from going to the government um, with, with information regarding legal violations or lack of compliance or whatnot. Um, and, and there's a great deal of protection that the government also uh, has in place for any employers who engage in any sort of retaliation against whistleblowers. Um, that, that's not something that a company wants to do um, because you can incur financial penalties. And in some cases, you know, officers and directors can face personal liability as well if there's any form of retaliation. Um, so the government's really created an environment where, where whistleblowers have compelling financial reasons to come forward and they have robust protections against any form of retaliation. And uh, in some instances, you know, like in the SEC's whistleblower program, through judicial interpretation, it was determined that to be a whistleblower, you have to go to the SEC. You, you can't go to the company internally first, right? So there's there's just a huge incentive in, in those circumstances for folks to go right to the government and not uh, report internally first. And, and you can imagine that, that there's a cottage industry of law firms out there that are advertising and promoting whistleblowing um, because they want a chunk of that award themselves. Sure. You know, I think uh, just in passing, one of the observations that I would uh, offer is too, if you're a corporate lawyer and listening to this, um, make sure that you involve one of your employment partners in documenting any severance arrangements or termination agreements with departing employees. Uh, it was not uncommon 10 years ago to put provisions in there that were sort of gag orders in terms of confidentiality agreements. Those have to be modified. You cannot uh, have a confidentiality provision in a termination agreement that prevents somebody from making uh, reporting to the government. 
So there are some standardized language that's developed in this area that I'd encourage you to seek out if you don't have it already. Um, the second observation I would make is you would be surprised who can qualify as a whistleblower. Uh, I've had situations in which the compliance director uh, of a company who was a lawyer and practicing law as the compliance director, signing all of her emails, attorney-client privileged, uh, still uh, upon termination, uh, turned into a whistleblower. And the federal district court ruled that um, the attorney-client privilege would not prevent that from happening. So um, if you're not up to speed in, in this area, you may want to spend some, a little bit of time on understanding the breadth of who the government is allowing to be a whistleblower and the fact that people in positions of trust within the organization, such as an attorney, um, aren't barred from pursuing them. Yeah, Frank, you know, I'll just step off there with, with another point. I mean, in the same vein, um, it, it, with the respect to the SEC's whistleblower program, individuals can still be protected and receive awards as a whistleblower, even if they participated in the, the illegal activity. Um, as long as they they aren't found, you know, ultimately liable, and, and there's an adjudication of that um, that that uh, violation of the law on their behalf, um, they can report activity that they were involved in and still obtain an award. So it, it is it's quite shocking the the scope of individuals who can be deemed whistleblowers um, by the government and incentivized by those programs. So, uh, Mike, you've already talked a little bit about the SEC's whistleblower program. Are there other programs that directors and those who advise them should know about? Yes. I mean, generally, um, as, a, as a, a director, you should feel that there's likely some form of uh, whistleblower encouragement on the government's behalf in connection with just about any industry you're involved in, right? Um, I mean, to start with, the, the oldest whistleblower law, I'll call it a whistleblower law, because um, it, it has that spirit uh, involved in it is, is the False Claims Act. And the False Claims Act originated in, in Civil War era. It was designed to address people basically ripping off the government during Reconstruction. The idea being that uh, individuals are anointed uh, private attorneys general where they can go off and they can file what's called a, a KETAM litigation. It's basically um, a complaint that the whistleblower brings on behalf of the government uh, claiming that the government's been fraudulent, you know, defrauded in some manner. Um, and that that individual then gets the share and the reward if they have any recovery. And the government can intervene and take over the complaint and all that. But, you know, th this is a big area of litigation and a big source of reporting to the government um, because it, it touches basically every industry where the government is a counterparty. So, you know, just Think healthcare, for example. Um, if you've got Medicare or Medicaid involved and they're paying, uh, this is where the False Claims Act often comes in. People file uh, key fam litigation exposing fraud on the government in connection with Medicare or Medicaid. Um, and just a huge area of litigation happens right there. Um, you know, OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Act, uh, that has a whistleblower um, provisions within the act itself. And, and it's for reporting unsafe and unhealthy working conditions in the workplace. Uh, and it would include environmental problems as well. 
Um, and th- that legislation has been beefed up recently in response to a whole lot of OSHA health and safety violation complaints related to COVID during this pandemic. Uh, Congress introduced a bill in, in June of 2020 to protect COVID-related whistleblower activities. Um, so there's, there's more protections being added, not less there. Um, in, the le- in December of 2020, um, two different pieces of legislation were enacted, the Criminal Antitrust Anti-Retaliation Act and the Anti-Money Laundering Act. Um, both passed in December 2020 and um, both establishing greater protections for people um, reporting, uh, in one instance, criminal antitrust law violations. And, uh, you know, with respect to the Anti-Money Laundering Act, um, the, the program is a similar one to the SEC's Dodd-Frank whistleblower program, um, but in relation to, to money laundering. And there's all sorts of other legislation at the state and federal level that protects whistleblowers when they're disclosing information relating to work protection, consumer product safety, uh, commercial motor vehicle safety. The, the list really goes on and on. So the, the thing to understand there is that whatever industry you're in, there's probably um, some whistleblower protection uh, and incentive out there that the government has provided um, that's going to affect you. Well, that's pretty comprehensive. The government's casting a pretty big net. Uh, from, so from the board's perspective, what should directors be thinking insofar as whistleblowers are concerned? Right. So I, I, going back to the, where I started, you know, it's the board's duty of oversight. Um, and, and concerns about care mark liability, but really the board's affirmative obligation to oversee the risk that the company um, faces and, and to, you know, operate that company, to, to oversee the company in a way that's uh, serving the best interest of the company, recognizing that whistleblowers are going to arise and um, the severity of the outcome or, or the damage to the company is going to depend in part potentially on whether they arise internally or externally. Boards of directors really need to be thinking about how they can encourage whistleblowers internally um, instead of just running off to the government and, and doing so legally, of course, because as we discussed, you can't just prohibit folks from going to the government. So really boards are thinking in terms of, and should be thinking in terms of incentivizing their employees to report issues internally. That's rule number one. Um, and then rule number two is make sure that, that when those employees are reporting internally, there's protection against retaliation. There's systems in place that don't allow that to happen. Um, you, you want to have processes in place where whistleblowers can report anonymously. Um, and then once uh, anything is reported and the company's acting on it, you want to be able to, for instance, take the wrongdoer who's being reported on out of that chain of command and out of that, out of that decision tree. Because if, if, if not, then there's the potential that the employee's later going to claim retaliation um, and just to make one problem only worse. So one of the other things I've noticed is that um, there's still a tendency, uh, even on behalf of senior management and boards, when a whistleblower comes forward to see that person in a negative light, sort of a traitor uh, to the cause, um, or as a kook or a disgruntled person. Um, And what I like to tell boards is even a broken clock is right twice a day. Uh, So even if this is a sort of a disgruntled person, employee or or what you might regard as a kook it might be a kook with a with a factual story so um there's needs i think being often an attitudinal adjustment about what is thought of whistleblowers mike is that consistent with your experience 
that's consistent with my experience. And it's, it's really the way that, that you have to transform yourself when you're thinking about, um, how to deal with whistleblowers when they arise. I mean, from everything we're hearing today, right. The, the government is out there trying to incentivize and attract whistleblowers to come to the government. And that's going to cost the company more boards ought to be in of the view that they're almost in competition with the government to attract whistleblowers internally. You want them to report internally. And even if they, they, they're kooks, um, you know, so to speak, you at least got that internal report. That's something that the company can handle and the company can deal with, um, and take seriously and, and, you know, investigate whatever the concerns are. Um, there's a lot of reports that are going to lead nowhere, right? You're going to get hotline tips. You're going to get people who want to just report on a coworker because they got a grudge, you know, and then there's going to be some that are valid. And it's really important that you view those reports as valuable to the company because it gives the company the opportunity to deal with the problems instead of the, the problem migrating out to the government where you lost a lot of control on how you're going to respond. Also, I think it's important to talk to directors about how to regard um, hotline volume. I've seen situations in which directors are, you know, compliance director comes in and tells the board, hey, we have no calls on the hotline this year. And somehow people think that's a good thing. Uh, it can actually be a sign of a bad thing. It could uh, be a sign that the culture internally is not one uh, that encourages uh, reporting. Um, and, uh, so I think that, uh, boards should not regard a silent hotline as a, is a good sign that consistent with your view. I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you entirely. And, and a lot of this is, is, you know, just coming out of the law of Delaware and, and care bar cases lately, where, um, when you see courts discussing the care mark liability, um, the, the obligation of oversight is to create the systems in place, right. For reporting. Um, and then to make sure you're responding to red flags and people think of red flags as, Oh, you know, the, the hotline tip or whatever. Well, you know what? The plaintiff's class action bar views the absence of reports to the board as a red flag in and of itself. That's telling the board that maybe their systems aren't working and the board needs to then engage in some efforts to address that problem, you know, determine whether it is a problem and, and, and then to address it. So um, I agree with you. Absolutely. You know, the absence of any tips whatsoever, if I'm a board member, I'm going to be thinking, maybe we have a problem with our reporting systems. They're not effective enough. We need to do something to address that. So let's talk a little bit about the systems. Uh, when, a, when a complaint comes in, at what level should the complaint be dealt with? Is it an HR matter? Is it a matter for the law department? Uh, how, how should that be dealt with? As, as a board, you want systems in place for responding to whistleblower complaints that, that escalate those complaints um, appropriately uh, within the company. You, you want policies that, in, in the first instance, investigate whatever the whistleblower claims are. Um, and then determine, you know, with some degree of proportionality, how far that that issue gets raised. Um, some problems can be handled just at the HR level. You could have whistleblower, you know, type complaints of, about uh, a hostile work environment that, that maybe can be handled just, you know, internally with HR. Next level of seriousness, you might, you might need uh, an investigation by internal counsel. Um, really big matters, you're probably going to want to get outside counsel in, involved. Um, so you want systems in place for a, a way to triage 
what level a particular complaint is, is going to be handled. Um, that's just sound policy, and it'll keep a lot of uh, lower-level distractions off the board's plate. Um, and then once you have those systems in place, you also want uh, systems in place or policies about how the board is going to monitor and be involved in responding to any whistleblower issues. So you want policies in place to ensure the board is being informed at an appropriate level about what issues are being reported. So maybe just the volume of hotline tips, for instance, um, and general compliance issues. That should be, you know, the subject of periodic reporting to the board. But you also want escalation policies involved so that when when matters that are of material significance to the company, you know, large risks to the company are, are at issue, um, those issues are escalated to the board level, if appropriate. And that way the board can really get involved and exercise its oversight responsibilities. So it's really a matter of of having policies in place to kind of delineate where pro- certain problems should go and when problems need to be escalated to the board level. One of the I, I agree with everything Mike has just said, and one of the observations I would add is that in certain circumstances, not every circumstance for sure, but where the uh, complaint touches upon the C-suite uh, and implicates uh, perhaps even the CEO or the chief financial officer. Um, those are circumstances uh, that I often see uh, boards form special committees to, to deal with. Is that your view, Michael? Absolutely. Once you get to the C-suite or you're dealing with you know directors who are also officers, um, you've got a whole another level of problem because the problem has now reached a board level. And you need to be sure that you are eliminating conflicts of interest and you're having an independent body address those issues. And, um, you know, Frank, you and I have talked about this before. Uh, it could be a difficult thing when a problem arises to the board level and it involves, for instance, your CEO, and now you've got directors who are going to be taking action, investigating that. Um, if you're making those decisions, you know, then when the problem has already arisen, it's probably a little more difficult than if you had policies in place uh, beforehand on a, on a clear day. Um, that addressed exactly how those issues would be handled and, and taken care of that, you know, removes the wrongdoer or the alleged wrongdoer from the equation. It's really important to think about that in advance. Directors should, I think, also be um, exercising an appropriate degree of skepticism uh, in certain circumstances. I'm involved in one now where the alleg- a very serious allegation is was made against the um, CEO uh, of, of participation in criminal conduct, uh, and the, the longtime general counsel advised the board that he and his uh, staff, together with the company's regular outside counsel, would be able to handle the matter. Um, and to make a long story short, uh, all three of them ended up losing their jobs. Um, the inside, longtime inside outside counsel was replaced by another law firm. And um, the, the fact of all of that uh, has been a concern to the regulators, a uh, concern to the auditors, and uh, will undoubtedly become part of the uh, uh, inevitable securities litigation that will occur. So when a board member is faced with um, a recommendation that a matter can be handled internally or by regular in-house counsel, that's often the case, but not always the case. And uh, I think directors should feel free to ask questions about that. 
Absolutely agree. Could not agree more. So as we wrap you, up, you got your, it. go ahead. I was just going to say each each situation is unique and has to be you know uh, addressed in its own own facts. Um, but boards of directors should always be concerned when you have a problem at the C-suite or, or director level. Um, that that what's the allegation going to look like you know after the fact, right? Was this the appropriate? Uh, handling of a concern that was raised to the board, which was handled in an independent fashion, free from conflicts of interest, or are you creating facts that someone's going to later point to as a cover-up, you know, true or not? Um, that's what you're thinking about. On a recent visit to the SEC, uh, where I was making a presentation regarding my internal investigation, the uh, SEC exam, uh, officer stopped me dead in my tracks before I ever got started and said, before we begin your presentation, I need to know about your firm's relationships with this company. How long have you represented them? Are you truly independent, et cetera? And so I think that the agencies are starting to become more uh, diligent in their uh, efforts to understand whether the, those conducting the investigation have any other relationships with the company. So, Mike, as we wrap up, any parting thoughts for directors? I, I think the, the parting thought I have is that there's, you take nothing else away from this discussion. Um, it, it, and wholly apart from a company's legal obligation to be self-monitoring for legal compliance, it really is in the company's best interest to have robust internal reporting systems in place and a culture of compliance that genuinely encourages internal reporting because that's how you're going to avoid the worst outcomes, um, if, if possible, um, by instead having uh, problems identified internally that you can handle and manage internally. Um, and, and getting it wrong can result in a lot more financial exposure for the company and uh, even potential liability for the board. So th this should be front and center on the board's attention. I think one last point I would add to that is the boards can be keyed into the reputational risk of being associated with a failure of oversight uh, or a lax approach to uh, a whistleblowing matter when it comes forward. With that, I think we'll close. And I want to thank uh, Mike Blanchard uh, for both his contributions to the Director's Handbook and his participation in this podcast today. We thank you all for your attention. Please look out for additional uh, segments of this series. And with that, I wish you all a good day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series to the extent that the section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.